Welcome to episode 39 of China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. Kui Ka Yan was, until recently, Asia's richest man. Now he's on a spectacular losing streak. The property company that he founded, Evergrande Group, has already missed interest payments of more than $100 million, and it remains leveraged to the tune of $300 billion. This has brought notoriety to Mr. Hui, who's known to enjoy gambling large sums of money on poker. Some people are wondering if the crisis will prompt investors around the world to throw their cards in when it comes to betting on China. Well, this week, I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast Paul Hodges, chairman of New Normal Consulting, who's been closely following events at Evergrande and considering what they mean for China's international reputation. Paul, can we start with Hui Ka-Yan? According to Forbes, Mr. Hui was Asia's richest man with a net worth of 45 billion US dollars in 2017. Now, the Financial Times reckons it's probably dropped to about 10 or 11 billion dollars since Evergrande started defaulting on its payments. Still, it's a huge sum of money for an individual. Where does it come from? Well, Duncan, one's got to go back a bit in time and really go back to the end of Mao and the Cultural Revolution in 1978, at which point Deng Xiaoping came in as the new ruler of China. And he realized that China was incredibly backward, incredibly poor. And the only thing he thought to do was to let loose wild spirits, really, just to see what happened, because everybody really was below poverty line, more or less. And so that happened. And that moved forward over 20 or 30 years. And gradually, people got out of the, um, some people at least got out of absolute poverty of below a dollar a day and got up to two or two and a half dollars a day. Uh, Some people got a bit more. And then Deng in the early 1980s did his famous Southern tour where he said, look, we must do more of this. We've just got to try anything to see if it works. And he came up with the phrase, it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white as long as she catches mice. Now, that was the scene. We then got into China joining the World Trade Organization in 2001, and it became the Wild East. You could do anything. Basically, licenses were handed out, money exchanged hands, and if you were in the right place at the right time and you knew the right people, you could get onto a fortune, rather like in the late 1900s in the United States with the gold rush. Well, it sounds like Hui Kayan was in the right place at the right time, Paul. Uh, But can you explain how the kind of fortune that he still holds, actually, relates to the average money earned by an ordinary person in China? You've got one of the worst discrepancies between the rich and the poor of any country in in China. So the average per capita income in China is around $3,300 a year. Uh, Premier Li, a few months ago, said there are 600 million people in China who live on less than $150 a month. So you've got, on the one hand, you know, nearly half the population living on less than $3 a day, and then you've got him on billions. I mentioned Mr. Hui's love of poker. He also owns a big yacht called Event. Now, that seems a strange name for a boat. How much did it cost and what's it used for? We don't know exactly, obviously, but 
uh, it's reported that it cost around $67 million. And if you're doing these deals and you know, you've got somebody important coming to the meeting, but they don't necessarily want to be seen to be involved in all of this, it's rather nice. You know, the critical feature of the boat, I mean, 67 million, if you go to Monte Carlo and look in the harbor there, it's really, that's not a very big boat. Uh, but yeah, it was big enough for his uh, purposes because basically what he, what he had got there was the helicopter pad. So I want to do a deal with you. I love playing poker. So here's the helicopter, off you come Duncan. There we are, settle down, have some Muay Thai, off we go for the evening. Well, I didn't receive an invitation to the yacht, Paul, and perhaps uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I'm rather pleased that I didn't. <laughs> Still, this company, Evergrande, has defaulted on a significant proportion of its debts. Interestingly, it's been criticised by the central bank, that's the People's Bank of China, and it's not the only property company in difficulty, is it? No, we've seen numbers at the moment of going up to $5 trillion of uh, potentially difficult uh, debt, and nobody quite knows. At this particular stage in any crisis, the central bank is doing two things. One is it's trying to calm nerves in the external market because confidence is very important and you don't want, you know, People, if you tell people toilet rolls are going short, they rush to buy toilet rolls and there you've got a toilet roll problem. Same, same with banking. If I tell you, Duncan, that I'm going bankrupt, you immediately rush to the bank and try and get my money that I owe before everybody else. So the, the bank is trying to do that. It's also at this moment trying to isolate the specific problem of Evergrande so that you don't get this contagion. It seems to me as though we're looking at two issues here phenomenal wealth inequality and a bubble in the property market, probably a bubble that's bursting, actually. Do you see a relationship between those two things, Paul? I, I do, but I, I, in a way, I think that a lot of people are looking at the, the, the wrong end of the telescope. I think we can be reasonably sure that China has been planning for this for quite some time. 2017, you know, five years ago, President Xi said, very clear as a policy statement, houses are for living in, not for speculation. And it did seem at the time that he was about to crack down on this real estate bubble. But then, of course, Trump came along, and I think it was too risky to be up against the United States and President Trump, and at the same time, bursting the property bubble. So it's been delayed, and of course, therefore, the bubble has got a bit bigger. But the real issue here is... China, I think, will sort through this problem. It will be messy. There will be people losing a lot of money. But the real people who are going to lose money here are the people who've invested overseas, countries and companies, on the basis that China is always going to grow at 8 9 10% a year. And therefore, you can build this plant to supply China, and you're going to make a fortune. That's where the crisis is going to come. It's going to be a crisis in the Western stock markets. It's not going to be a crisis in China's stock market because really China's stock market doesn't matter very much. I'm interested in that reply that you mentioned President Trump. And obviously this is a situation which is being closely watched in the United States. What do you think it says about US-China great power rivalry then? I think you've got a continuing rivalry uh, between these two countries. Uh, President Trump had his own take on this. President Biden is an old-fashioned, I don't mean that disparagingly, an old-fashioned 
Labour-supporting uh, Democratic uh, president, and therefore he prefers jobs to be in America rather than overseas. If you remember, uh, Duncan, when President Clinton signed the North American Free Trade Agreement, that was over the heads of most Democrat senators at the time. It was only done with Republican votes. So the Democrat Party has always been against offshoring, and President Biden is therefore quite keen to bring those back. And of course, you know, if, if, you, if you are the world leader, you would rather see your rivals undercut. So going back to China, in the past few years, the cost of housing has risen sharply in some of China's big cities, especially in the South, cities like Shenzhen, Hong Kong, Guangzhou. Uh, this was the region of China where Mr. Hui was particularly active with Evergrande, wasn't it? It was, but uh, one has to remember that there's sufficient empty apartments in China uh, to house 90 million people. So in other words, another way of putting that is over the last 10 years of the stimulus program that China has been doing, it's been subprime on steroids. And essentially what they've been doing is they've been building speculative apartments. When I say speculative, obviously there are apartments in the tier one cities, as you say, that they've been building, but they've also been building apartments in cities far away that nobody's ever going to live in. Uh, for example, I talked to a, a businessman who'd been to Sichuan and he thought he would, yeah, they were building apartments there and he thought this would be very good. He'd be able to sell insulation. And he came back as a German businessman and he said, no, he said, we couldn't sell any insulation. And when I talked to the developer, he said, no, no, look, these, these apartments that we're building are for speculation. They're never going to be lived in. We don't, we don't connect the electricity. So why should we bother to uh, put in insulation? You've had this very strange position in China because nobody really invests in the stock market. That's just a casino and you can't get your money out. The, the property market has been the place where people put their money. And so the property market is a very dangerous place to be at the moment. And that's why it's got the full attention of the government. You have to take the debt down. You have to sort out the problems. But if you, if you do it too, you know, do it, do it badly, you've got big risks. As I say, I don't think that uh, those risks will prove overpowering. I think it would be difficult. But I do think the West is very, very unprepared for this. And it, as I say, it's looking down the wrong end of the telescope in terms of where the risks are. The risks are in Wall Street, the risks are in Europe and in London. They're not so much in Beijing or Shanghai. When you talk about these kind of risks, Paul, it seems to me as though there are parallels with the subprime mortgage crisis in the United States in the run up to the 2008 financial crash. And that had global implications, of course. I mean, the amazing thing that's different between the States and, uh, and China is that people were actually living in the properties that they built in, in the States. The issue was simply they couldn't afford them. You had these teaser loans of half a percent, but, you know, and you didn't pay anything for two years. And after that, then you had to send back the keys because you couldn't afford the payment. China has been building empty apartments. So it's been, it's been building phantom apartments for phantom babies, if you like, and phantom people, which of course is why it's been able to go on for much longer. One last point for today, Paul. Um, in the past few years, I've observed that a lot of China's rich entrepreneurs have been brought down to earth after clashes with the Chinese Communist Party. Do you think it's possible that Hui Kaiyan of Evergrande is being deliberately humbled? Or is his fall from grace 
a result of his own hubris. It is a communist party. Uh, it's not a democratic party. And you can do you know, quite a lot of what you want as long as you don't challenge the centre. If you challenge the government and you challenge the communist party, well, on your own head be it. Um, that doesn't go down very well, as Jack Maher found at Alibaba, and as you say, other, other people have found. I don't think that Mr. Hui has, has challenged uh, the party in that way. I think he probably still retains his connections. So at the moment, I would expect him to still come out with a, you know, a modest few million to look after him in his old age. But, you know, we'll have to see how it goes. Well, thank you, Paul, for a lot of really insightful answers. Thank you, Paul Hodges there from New Normal Consulting. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, which is part of the University of London. And you can find out more about our research and courses on our website, soas.ac.uk. That's SOAS for SOAS. For now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.